Good morning. So the national budget has been in the news recently. Uh, pundits and the general public have been mining it for uh, underlying agendas and priorities. And this is not unlike what happens at the municipal or local levels where city budgets or I might even suggest at our household level. And I think the principle there is that budgets reflect our values. Budgets act as creeds of sorts. They reflect what we believe. So today we continue and uh, conclude our four-part four uh, series around living in God's economy and exploring the creative tension that that sometimes brings while being rooted in the human economy. Uh, last week we heard from three in our congregation and uh, we'll follow the same format uh, this Sunday where we'll hear from Jay Parrish, Sue Groff, uh, and Trace Oberholzer. And the idea, again, is that as we incorporate multiple voices into this conversation, we begin to see the variety of textures and angles that we can uh, communally live together in putting our principles into practice and live out our creeds. My father understood money very well, having grown up in the Depression, having been evicted from their home and eating cold baked bean sandwiches for lunch. My mother, on the other hand, grew up in Brazil and never saw or handled money until she was 18. As a result, she was tremendously creative in making something out of nothing, mostly tropical vegetation. As a child, she had bread and tea for breakfast and then rice and beans for lunch and soup for dinner. And the soup was made from watered-down rice and beans from lunch. Once when they were visiting a family further out in the wilds, they gave her a bowl of rice and beans, her favorite, Near the end of lunch, they asked her to hurry since the dog needed his bowl back. My life was considerably easier. As a child, I had a paper route. I was intimidated by asking people for money, and I lost money on my paper route. How can you lose money on a paper route, you might ask. Well, one person epoxied change on their front steps and then would drop their payment as they gave it to me, so I would try to pick up the epoxied coins. After a while, I just gave up on handling money. In college, I realized my dysfunction and found a Christian group that offered a course in money management. I sent in my check only to get a letter rejecting me from the course because my check bounced. <laughs> in my opinion, I had demonstrated my need. I worked for Mobile Oil and subscribed to a Christian magazine called The Other Side, devoted in part to economic justice. But I envisioned my subscription checks smelling and burning fingers in their office. I wrote and asked if they wanted me to quit. I worked for an environmental firm, which was brought out by SAIC, bought out by SAIC, which does a lot of military contracting. I found that my retirement would depend on how much military work they did. So I talked with Titus, and I decided to leave and work for the county GIS at a 40% pay cut. It was not a good monetary move. We were downwardly mobile. We went, we went into VS after that, further downwardly mobile. <laughs> Uh, we ate a lot of lentils and had salmon twice uh, in Seattle, thanks to the generosity of church members. When we tried to buy a house in Lancaster, one couple took a look at our income during VS, $600, and refused to sell their house to us because they said we were financially irresponsible. I already knew that. 
When I reached 60, I figured I should consider retirement. Up till then, I had not given it much thought. I remember Dwayne Hirschberger standing right here, singing his song about conflicted feelings entitled, What If a Mennonite Won the Lottery? <laughs> and thinking, but that's my retirement strategy. I'm not very good at this. The day I re- decided to quit my tenure-track university job was when my colleague asked during a meeting, why should we do this other than it's fair and just? That made me think. After fairness and justice, what is left for motivation? Money? Is it really all just about money? I don't think so. A wonderful man named Dan in our Bible study once bailed us out of a financial difficulty with the condition that we do the same for others when we could. Dan's generosity was guided by relationships. Dan gave to the usual charities and church, but extended his ties to needs when he found them. Non-tax-deductible needs, I should point out. If you give money and no one knows it, is it still a gift? That anonymous generosity is what Christ spoke of when he said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Perhaps that disregard for tax deductions makes you a bad money manager in the world's eyes, but squarely in the center of generosity in the eyes of Christ. To know the importance of relationships over money and giving without counting. In California, we were members of a Swedish evangelical church pastored by John Bray. He gave a sermon on tithing using Deuteronomy 14, which we just heard, that says we should tithe for celebrations. He suggested taking 10% of your income and throwing an annual big party to celebrate the blessings God has given us and to remember those with no inheritance. A party for all, not just your immediate circle, but a really, really big party. I like John Bray. I like to imagine our church if we were to follow that approach. What would, would there be dozens of really great celebrations all year long? John Bray's point was that it should be extravagant to celebrate the Lord's goodness. Not a tax-deductible, wise investment, low-key, hidden wealth party, but an extravagant, no bolds barred celebration. Going back to Deuteronomy 14.26, it says, Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord and your God and rejoice. Perhaps it's about relationships. I've never gone to a funeral and heard people comforting the family with, Well, he left you a lot of money. In life, we define people by what they do, where they live, and where they go on vacation, and what they wear, all influenced by how much money they have. In life, we define people by wealth. In death, we see more clearly. We remember who they were and how they related. For example, my grandfather was called Senor Homer, which was slurred into Shomero. He was always joking and enjoying people, and as a missionary, he died with no estate, so he could say that his children inherited nothing. He spent half his life in Brazil, But decades after he was gone, Marilyn and I mentioned his name to a farmer in Mato Grosso, Brazil. The farmer stopped, got a faraway look, smiled, and said, Ah, Shomero. That's what he left the world. Ah, Shomero. And that's what I inherited. My hope is that I can leave the same to my children. For me to go, her hair needed to be trimmed. Combing her thick strands occurred only with high resistance and unpleasantness for the whole family. With that task completed, the next day, I boarded a plane for Oregon with a final destination of Eugene. I was asked to serve as a delegate for Lancaster Conference at the 1991 church convention. 
Abby, our four-year-old with the new Bob, and her two older siblings were Marlon's responsibility for the week. So David, this would be like Margaret leaving you with three kids for a week. (laughs) One theme that week was stewardship of our resources. I clearly remember being challenged to reflect on who owns my resources. One speaker specifically challenged us to look at how we view our money and consider giving more each year and closer to 10% or a tithe of our earnings. I was moved and touched at a deep level. At that time, Marlon and I were giving around 4% of our income. The speaker convinced me to consider a higher tithe level. I was equally convincing to Marlon when I returned home, as from that year on, we increased our giving by 1% annually for the next 15 years, making up for the earlier 10 years of giving 4% or less. I may be sharing more than our Matthew passage today really recommends, but it was through seeing people's generosity personally when I worked in development at Bridge of Hope and Friendship Community that continues to challenge me to to work at this. Um, Maybe everyone here, except maybe Jay, who couldn't even raise his own newspaper money, should uh, work in fundraising for a year. It's, It's really a humbling experience. Well, that was one aspect of my finances where I've, I've been convicted. The other one is kind of a crazy twist I feel about credit cards. Despite encouragement from my children and my friends, I have yet to be convinced to carry a cashback rewards card. For example, I got this letter last week from Bank of America. Prestige without price, it's titled. You've been pre-selected. Exclusive? Yes. An offer like this can be extended only to those most creditworthy. That's because it allows you to earn cash back on all your purchases automatically. 1% cash back everywhere, every time. 2% cash back at grocery stores and wholesale clubs. And 3% cash back on gas for the first 2500 in combined grocery, wholesale, club, gas purchases each quarter. Plus, you get $150 cash reward bonus after you make at least $500 in purchases within 90 days of account opening. I'm exhausted. How do they do this? How do offers like this, offers like this make me question, where do I get the funds? Where do they get the funds? Where do the banks get the funds? to offer these kinds of rewards. Do they come from charging higher interest rates to cardholders who are struggling and unable to pay their balances in full? I suspect that's one way. Another aspect of using a credit card is how it affects pricing of products. Stores make up for the fees that they need to charge to accept credit cards by raising the prices on the merchandise. So buyers pay more for their purchases, but those with the honor of having rewards cards get cash back. That's a nice deal. But then I ask, how does increased pricing affect those who are struggling? One of the reasons I think I've not been convinced to buy into some of these rewards cards is that 
early in our marriage, we had friends who worked for the Mennonite Foundation, um, which came, well, uh, which came, uh, out of that came Everence. And so early on, we had Mennonite, um, we had Everence credit cards where 1.5% of each transaction goes to several nonprofits voted on annually by its members. One year, Bridge of Hope, where I worked, was selected. Well, starting in June, I just happened to hear this as um, the Everence advocate for our church. Everence is offering even more flexibility. So if you have an Everence credit card, 1.5% of your transaction goes, can go towards a nonprofit that you choose. And they have 9,000 charitable organizations on this list. That seems like the kind of rewards card for my wallet. Um, so being a member of Everance has, has been important to me because I know where the money, extra monies are going. It's going to people in need or, or programs. Um, for example, um, Chestnut Housing has received in the last year, five years, over $5,500 in grants for that program. Some other unique things they have is um, to encourage good planning. Um, Everance gives $50 back if, to you for preparing or updating a will. And some college students here have received Everance grants for their studies. Well, after worship, I'm going to grab my coffee and I'm going to head down to my Sunday school class so I can't answer any questions, but I'm going to put some materials down at the popular spot, which is the end of the coffee table, if you want to um, look at any of this stuff further. All right, the, uh, my talk is going to include two polls, so you're going to have to talk with your neighbor and do some voting. So here comes poll number one. If, uh, when you were eight years old, if your parents had bought you a cereal like Lucky Charms. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> All right, we've got a fan. <laughs> How did you eat Lucky Charms when you were eight years old? I can think of three ways. Number one, you ate the oat. I'm sorry? Five ways. Well, we're going to stick with three or else I might be here for a while. The first way I can think of is you eat the oat part first and save the marshmallows for last. The second possibility, this doesn't, I don't quite get this, but eat the marshmallows first and save the oats for last. Or just put your spoon in and whatever you get, you get. So, uh, Take, really, 15 seconds, get with a neighbor. How would have the eight-year-old you eaten a cereal like Lucky Charms? One, oatmeal, oat first. Two, marshmallows first. Three, just how it comes. All right. So, uh... That should have been enough time. I knew this was risky getting you talking, but uh, 
All right, so by a show of hands, how many of you eat the oat-based bits first? That was me. All right. How many of you eat the marshmallows first? <laughs> There's passion for that, but a fewer amount. And how many of you just put your spoon in and whatever comes, comes? Oh, interesting. So I would say that has it. Number three had it by a little bit over number one. Okay. Poll number two. In a minute, you're going to talk with those same neighbors about this question, and it has to do with how you approach finances as an adult. Category one acknowledges that I approach finances from a scarcity perspective. As I reflect on my life, no matter if I was a college student buried in debt, a financially set retiree, or somewhere in between, I live with a gnawing feeling that I or we do not have enough money. So that's option one. Category two acknowledges that I approach finances from an abundance perspective. As I reflect on my life, no matter if I'm a college student buried in debt or a financially set retiree or somewhere in between, I live with a comfortable feeling that I, we, we have enough money. We'll be all right. For Kristen and I, we, uh, we've been married for exactly half as long as we've been alive, which is rather amazing. I'll let you figure out how old we might be. Uh, our financial situations are identical. But Kristen approaches finances from an abundance perspective. She's like, Trace, we're fine. We'll be fine. I approach finances from a scarcity perspective, like, eh, I'm a little nervous about this. I don't know. Can we give that? Can we buy that? Are we going to do be Okay. And that's a, it's an interesting dynamic. So it doesn't have to do with how much money you have. There's something deeper there. So again, with that same neighbor you talked about Lucky Charms with, do you naturally approach finances, finances A, from a scarcity perspective, or B, from an abundance perspective? All right, so uh, you can return to that conversation during coffee time if you need to, but uh, so we're going to take another poll. This one's a little more, um, yeah, a little more telling, but uh, so first category is you approach, I, if I'm honest, I approach finances from a scarcity perspective. How many show of hands? Okay. And how many of you would say category two, I approach finances from an abundance perspective? Fewer. The first option, more people were definitely in that category. All right, so that's the polling part. Now here comes the, uh, you're probably wondering, okay, it's obvious how that second question has to do with the whole finance discussion. Um, the Lucky Charms one maybe is a little bit like, where'd that come from? Where's that going? But okay, here it is. During the Sunday school class, we talked about three different things, how we make money, how we spend money, and how we save money. I was pretty comfortable with the discussions around making and storing or saving money. I was challenged, but I was like, okay. But I found myself constantly squirming when we were talking about spending money. 
And I, I acknowledge that comes because I have an, a scarcity approach to money. I'm just not comfortable spending money. It doesn't matter if it's for a good thing or not. So I came up with the following hypothesis that you just helped to either prove or disprove during the voting, and we're going to get to that. And that is that if the eight-year-old you, the way you ate Lucky Charms as an eight-year-old was revealing about how you're going to approach finances as an adult. <laughs> so here's the, this is, this is where my hypothesis is going to either be proved or disproved in dramatic fashion. So here, this, this question, how many of you save the marshmallows for last and have a scarcity perspective on finances by a show of hands? Save the marshmallows for last and have a scarcity of perspective on finances, okay? Uh, not too many. How many of you just ate the cereal, however fate allowed, and have an abundance perspective on finances? All right. Now, here, here are the two uh, bust for my theory questions. How many of you either saved the marshmallows and have an abundance perspective or just ate the cereal and have a scarcity perspective? By show of hands. All right. Well, that was completely unscientific. <laughs> uh, it needs a little more work, but I think there's some, there could be something there. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'm going to end with a driveway moment. Um, those of you who listen to National Public Radio know what a driveway moment is. You're listening to something, and the story comes on, and you can't get out of the car until you hear the end of the story. I was driving down the road um, about just a little over a week ago. I was starting to think about what I'm going to share this morning, and somebody by the name of Nick Hanauer uh, came on, and he was talking about greed. And if you don't, I didn't know who Nick Hanauer was, but he was an early investor in Amazon, and he started a little company that Microsoft bought for $6.4 billion. So he's one of the 0.0001 percenters. And he said something about greed that, that stopped me in my tracks. It made me pull over the car, and I'm like, i got to write this down. So I'm looking around for a piece of paper to write something on, and I found a receipt in my pocket, ironically enough, and I wrote down the quote, and it says... The opposite, he said, the opposite of greed is cooperation. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. When I think of greed, I don't know what I thought the opposite of greed was, but I don't think cooperation would have come to mind first. The longer I sat with the opposite of greed is cooperation, the truer it rang. If your marriage or other significant relationship is at all like Kristen and mine, and you're really honest, a lot of your arguments have to do with finances and thus ultimately greed. The opposite of greed is cooperation. It, one of the first things that we did in the Sunday school class was um, Chuck and Craig showed us a clip from the 1987 movie Wall Street starring Michael Douglas. He uh, plays Gordon Gecko, a powerful stockbroker, and he has a speech that we watched which is just commonly known as the greed is good speech. So I'd just like to share that with you. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. 
Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. That was a speech to a a boardroom of VPs, everybody of influence in this Teldar paper company. So what if we would flip the script and substitute the word cooperation for greed in that same speech? The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that cooperation, for lack of a better word, is good. Cooperation is right. Cooperation works. Cooperation clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Cooperation in all its forms, cooperation for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And cooperation, you mark my words, would not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. What role nature and nurture play in how we eat lucky charms, and how we view finances is still mysterious. Our poll didn't prove anything. Um, But substituting cooperation for greed does not sound easy, but it might be one of the best things we can do to start to live out, become capitalists in the model of Jesus. Thanks. Thanks.